Good afternoon, Storehouse. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The word of God for the people of God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good afternoon. My name is Marco, and I serve as the preaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. In the event that you didn't catch LC, we're going to find ourselves in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at a very large passage of scripture. We're looking at verses 1 through 12 this afternoon. While you open or load your Bibles, two quick things for you. The first one is uh, we have Bibles in the pews where you're seated. Uh, That is our gift to you. We love to preach from God's word. Therefore, we love to gift God's word. And so if you don't have a Bible, that's our gift for you. If you know someone who would uh, graciously benefit from having uh, God's word in their hand, take one, two, or five. Finally, if you are new, you're going to see these cards. These cards are called Connect Cards. We'd love the opportunity to pray for you or to take you out to lunch. And so I would encourage you, I would invite you to fill out one of those Connect Cards so that we can hang out, Lord willing. Uh, Other than that, those are the updates I have for you. What I'd like to do, because we're going to look at, uh, as I mentioned, a large portion of Scripture, I'd like to dive right into prayer, and then we'll dig into our time. So join me as we pray. Um, God, we thank you for this afternoon and allowing us to gather freely, publicly, um, worshipfully. Um, God, I just pray that your word, even though it may be hard, even though it may force us to confront some realities, whether it's the reality of sin within us, whether it's the reality of evil around us, Lord, I pray that your word would be sweeter than honey. God, I pray that we would come to know you better as a result, and that those who do not know you, that they would come and know you this afternoon. And so we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, here's the question. And the question is, how do you, how do you personally approach evil in the world? 
two of the ways that our culture tends to approach evil is that we as American Christians or the American culture, we tend to either ignore evil. In other words, we don't want to talk about it. We leave it under the rug and we just want to find truth for ourselves. Or the second way is that we idolize and immortalize evil. For a moment, I want you to think of a really good movie. And a really good movie usually has a villain, and if they do their job correctly, they're going to make you hate them. They're going to instill a great sense of fear and uncertainty in you. They're going to embody evil and injustice, and they're going to make us realize that these things exist. In other words, they're going to create a response from you. For example, have you ever watched Jaws, whether you saw it in 1975 or uh, uh, afterward? What was it like going to the bathroom or taking a shower after you saw Jaws, right? Or for instance, with Darth Vader appeared on the scene in 1977 in the first Star Wars movie, picture it for a moment. Could you imagine a theater that is absolutely dark with absolutely no cell phone in sight and the sound of his breath brooding in and throughout the theater? Like, it's cool now, but I don't know if it was cool that day in 1977. Or you could even consider the introduction of so many horror characters like Freddy Krueger or Jason and the mind-blowing, never-ending, never-dying Michael Myers of Halloween. All of these villains, all of these characters embodied evil. They instilled fear into their audiences. And how have you and I, for the most part, how have we wrapped our minds around these characters? We've immortalized them. We've idolized them. For instance, Darth Vader is pretty cool now. If you were to consider the famous scene in Star Wars Episode Nerd when everything is really dark and you just see the lightsaber turn on and there's all these bad guys and you hear the sound of his breath or his breathing, everybody goes wild because Darth Vader comes on the scene. The bad guy is coming out and everybody's down with that. We've idolized it. We've immortalized it. We've made them characters. Let me pause real quick. Is that me? Yeah, all right, sorry. Anyway, okay. So with all that being said, how about the recent partnership? Let's go even deeper and let's go even to our day. What about the, the, the recent partnership of, of Target with the company Aprolin, a company that sells satanic merchandise? How was that flushed out? Well, it was flushed out with colors and creativity and characters. Here's the thing, evil and sin are not cartoons. In fact, they are realities. The Bible teaches that Satan and the Antichrist exist. And that's not creativity that was designed, that's not figments of our imagination, but real experiences and a revelation that is to come. And so in our text today, we're going to examine why, as Christians, we must look to Christ now over the culture and over calamity. See, as Christians, we don't ignore evil, and we certainly don't idolize it. Therefore, not only should you and I be aware, but we should remain steadfast. In addition to that, you and I must examine ourselves on the account of evil in us and the account of evil around us. And so as we begin in this first chunk of scripture, I want to give you a little bit of context as to what is going on in this letter. The Apostle Paul has been writing to the church in Thessalonica in order to encourage them by way of correction. 
although Paul has been incredibly kind and encouraging to them about their steadfastness in the middle of persecution, it seems as though once we begin to walk into chapter 2, we learn a little bit more about what the church in Thessalonica was experiencing. We see that they're confused and we see that they're anxious about something. And so in verses 1 through 3, we are given a glimpse as to what's going on. First, in these verses, we identify a problem. Consider verse 1. Paul goes on to say, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him. So the subject matter tends to be concerning the return of Christ. This is also known as the day of the Lord, two sides of the same coin. And so that's what Paul is ultimately going to be talking to them about. That's the context of what's going on. Paul continues in verse 2, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit, spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us. It seems as though the Thessalonians are experiencing anxiety and confusion because they believed that Jesus had actually returned and they missed it. They were tripping out and freaking out and they were confused and they were filled with anxiety because they were, dare I say, left behind. They were asleep. They weren't awake. They didn't see the return of Christ and he has come and we are here by ourselves. Oh my gosh, what do we do? And the reason it seems as though they're stressing out is because they've received some sort of word, some sort of teaching, some sort of doctrine has come within the church. And as, as a result of this doctrine, here's what Paul says. Don't be quickly shaken in mind or spirit, either by spirit, spoken word, or letter. So what we don't know, you and I, what we don't know is what exactly it was that they received. We just know that it was a teaching. And so when Paul writes a spirit or by spoken word, he's talking more so about a prophetic voice. In other words, an individual within the church, perhaps maybe someone that they knew who had influenced and who had influence and who had uh, like charismatic abilities to call the church and rally the church to something specific. So maybe someone came in the church and started preaching a different gospel. Paul says, either by a letter, in other words, there may have been letters that were circulating by other individuals saying that they are the Apostle Paul and his team, and Paul is saying that wasn't us. In fact, at the end of 2 Thessalonians, and among other letters from the Apostle Paul, he often closes out by saying, I write this with my own hand. In other words, you can rest assured, you can be assured that I am the one who wrote this letter. I'm the one who's sending it to you. And he concludes this letter similarly. Whatever it was or whoever it was, it seems as though the Thessalonians were buying it and now they're panicking. Whatever that message was, whatever that doctrine was centered around the return of Christ, the Thessalonians are panicking because they bought it. And so Paul writes to correct them, first by reminding them, hey, do not be deceived. He goes on to say, spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. So in a moment, Paul's going to provide them with clarity, but here's the first question for you and I, are you easily deceived? See, in this same passage of scripture, one of the things that Paul tells the Thessalonians is, do you not remember that we talked about this when I was with you? 
He could be referencing the first letter that he wrote to them. He could be referencing uh, when they were together at community group after he had planted the church. And so what Paul is ultimately saying is, hey, you uh, received the truth. You knew the truth about God. We have talked about this subject in particular before. Don't be deceived. Are you easily deceived? Man, you're all about the Bible study, you're all about getting a bunch of knowledge, you're all about even having your own plan, and then some other cunning teaching comes along and you're easily deceived. Remember, Paul is encouraging them because they are remaining steadfast. When they are remaining steadfast, it keeps us from being deceived. And so Paul continues by providing them with clarity on this day in particular. And so in verse 3, Paul goes on to say, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So Paul is saying, hey, that day is going to come at the minimum when two things happen. All right, we all listen. And he's saying two things, the rebellion and the man of lawlessness. So we're going to examine both. The word for rebellion here in 2 Thessalonians is referring to what is called the great apostasy. If you're not familiar with apostasy, apostasy refers to an individual who claims to have professed, uh, once professed faith in Jesus and then has turned away, abandoned, and denied faith with unbelief. And what Paul is telling the church and telling us is that before the day of the Lord, before this day comes, we, the church, will see an enormous rebellion. In other words, there will be a day where countless people who once professed the faith will now reject it and walk away. And so I want to park here for a moment. Especially concerning our current times, it seems as though it's almost regular to hear of pastors and leaders denying and rejecting the faith through news and social media. You hear regularly about so many individuals, particularly in our younger generation, who are simply walking away. It's defeating, it's discouraging, it's difficult. But we need to consider why this takes place. So I'm going to give you three reasons. These aren't the only reasons, but I'm going to give you three brief reasons as to why this takes place. The first reason is individuals deny the faith because they loved the world more than they loved their Savior. See, Paul was not immune to this kind of experience at the hand of his own friends and co-laborers in the ministry. To Timothy, he writes to him about a friend named Demas. In 2 Timothy 4, he says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas was an individual that did ministry with Paul, traveled with Paul, probably helped him establish some of the churches. And here we are in what is known as Paul's last letter, 2 Timothy. And Paul is saying, Demas loved his sin and the world more, and he has deserted me. There's so much grief in Paul's tone when he writes that. Further, the apostle John goes on to say, they, these are individuals who are within the church, he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. See, these individuals who openly embrace the world more than the word, they loved the pleasures of this world and the sin of their heart so much more that it was enough for them to reject their faith. 
the Lord Jesus in Mark's account even talks about this in one of his parables, the parables of, of the sower. And he goes on to describe one of the seeds, and he goes on to say in Mark 4, some seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up, and it choked it, and it yielded no grain. Later on in the same chapter, when he unpacks this parable, he goes on to say, they are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. These are individuals who might spring a great deal of faith, and then even in that, it is choked out by the desire of the world. Second reason people walk away is that they embrace false teaching. Now, these are individuals who may have rejected sound teaching or never did any kind of digging on their own concerning the scriptures. In any case, they've fallen for false teaching, teaching that makes them feel good, that doesn't actually address the condition of their hearts, teaching such as health, wealth, and prosperity that makes me believe that if I just do more, then God's going to bless X, Y, and Z. They've enjoyed having their ears tickled. Once more to Timothy, Paul says, the Spirit expressly says in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciousness are seared. Paul is saying, man, they're not just going to be tickled. They're literally going to give themselves to this teaching. Finally, why do people walk away? It just gets too hard. You see, salvation is liberation from our sin, and our justification before God is solely through Jesus. And that does not mean that there will be no suffering or sickness or sin or affliction. And for some, the reality of this is simply too much. So they bounce. The hard but clarifying words surrounding apostasy is that the Bible teaches that all those who are saved by faith through Christ will persevere. It doesn't mean that we're going to be passive, even as much as you'd like to be. No, it means that we are steadfast and moving forward in the middle of affliction and pain, that our eyes are on Christ, not the culture or calamity. There will be Christians who doubt and drop the ball massively in addition to backsliding, but the distinction between the one who commits apostasy and the one who is backsliding is simply this, repentance. That's the distinction. Consider the accounts of Judas and Peter. Judas was with Jesus. He did ministry with Jesus. He ate with Jesus, yet his heart was hardened with unbelief. His faith was in his sin, so much so that there was no transformation in Judas. But he did all of the things. He walked with the other disciples. He was in a discipleship group with them. He attended community group. He was taught and listened to Jesus, yet he wore a mask the entire time. And then you consider, consider Peter who denied our Lord three times and to his face. And when the Bible records that when Peter locks eyes with Jesus on the third time that he denied him, the Bible records that Peter wept bitterly. That is to say that in his weeping, he repented of what he had just done. In John's account, we see Jesus publicly restoring Peter. See, the hard reality is that there are individuals, the hard reality is that there are individuals within the church 
that wear a solid mask of faith, but were never converted to begin with. And so what do we do with that? You as the individual, examine yourselves today. Paul tells this to the Corinthians. Examine yourselves to see whether or not you are in the faith. Secondly, Paul writes, the rebellion must take place and the revelation of the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. See, one of the ways Satan desires to, uh, one of the ways Satan desires people to deny and abandon their Christian faith isn't only through affliction and pain, but through deception, through the Antichrist. This individual, and check it, you don't know who it is, right? This individual will come and passionately endorse sin. They will oppose Christ, and they will deceive men and women in the church. And so here's what you need to know about that. What you need to know is that deception is not a new game. In fact, it is as old as the garden when we go back to Genesis 3, where Satan cunningly deceived Adam and Eve, and rather than killing the serpent, they entertained it. Deception isn't anything new. You need to be aware so that you are not deceived by any false doctrine or any false teaching. When you read through Scripture, I get it that there is some parts that are going to make it difficult. In fact, there are some parts of Scripture that are probably going to rub you the wrong way, but that doesn't make it untrue, particularly if the Lord has given you eyes and a heart to comprehend His words. Therefore, let us not fall into deception simply because we didn't like something that we read. We must stand fast in order to not be deceived. And concerning the man of lawlessness, listen, you don't know who this person is. And if you're super into eschatology, and I know some of you are, right? You're super into eschatology, the study of the end times, then you have your opinions on who it is, and congratulations, you're probably wrong. So with that being said, let us examine the tactics and objectives of the Antichrist. But before we do that, in order, let us not forget that in order to avoid confusion, we must stand firm in what God has revealed to us in his word, and we must examine ourselves. Repentance is the distinction. Bearing fruit is the distinction. And so let's move to verses 4 through 10. Here we're going to see that the overall objective of the man of lawlessness is calamity. That's the overall objective of this individual. And so before we move forward, we need to know that we're simply not going to know everything that was going on or have the best of clarity of what was going on in Thessalonica. But it seems as though the Thessalonians have clarity. Once more, in verse 5, Paul goes on to ask them, <clears throat> Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So clearly they've had dialogue concerning this topic before. So the Thessalonians know what Paul is talking about. We may not have the full picture. But nevertheless, we're going to do our best and consider Paul's description of the Antichrist's tactics and objective. Here it is, beginning in verse 4. Paul goes on to say, He opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. 
When it comes to this, here's what Paul is ultimately saying. He's saying, regardless of where you stand, one of the tactics for this individual is going to be idolatrous worship, specifically over him. He's going to proclaim to be God, which means he's going to do this by deceiving people to believe that he himself is God. And yet in reality, he opposes Jesus and he opposes the church. And Paul goes on to say something really stark. He says that this individual will take a seat in the temple of God. Now, there's several possibilities depending on where you land theologically, right, that can determine what this means. There are some commentators that believe the temple of God is referring to a, uh, the temple in Jerusalem. Others would argue that the temple will be rebuilt. Other commentators and theologians argue that when Paul says that he will take his seat in the temple of God, he's referring to a Christian context, specifically the church. So he's going to walk through the doors. He's going to know the language. He's going to be plugged into that CG. It seems as though it's going to happen within the church. And so Paul continues, <clears throat> proclaiming himself to be God. Verse 6, you know that what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in this time, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. The coming of the lawless one, this is verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. When Paul writes the word mystery, it's not something that needs to be figured out. It's something that has yet to be revealed, something that has yet to be made known. And so Paul continues saying that although this person has not been revealed, the work of lawlessness is already taking place. This could refer to the sin within us and the temptations around us, injustice, evil, all of this existing in our world. And Satan is using these various struggles to lure us away from the truth of God. In addition to that, Paul goes on to say, but... Though this is happening, this individual is restrained. I'm going to tell you right now, like this is a funky passage, right? That whole phrase that he is restrained, that there is one restraining this individual also has lots and lots of possibilities depending on where you land. I'll give you two as far as who's doing the restraining. Some commentators and theologians argue that it is the Holy Spirit who is doing uh, the restraining. That at one point the Holy Spirit will lift the restraints off and this individual will make himself known fully publicly. Other commentators would say that it's actually the message of the gospel, which in turn is still the Lord, but it is the message of the gospel that is restraining this individuals because Jesus to his disciples said, you must go and preach the gospel to all the nations. And until that happens, then I will return. And so what some commentators would argue is that it's actually the message of the gospel that is being advanced in our world today. That's what's restraining this individual. Regardless of what it is, here's the principle. There is one, the Lord, who is restraining this individual right now. And when this individual makes himself known, they will have power and influence. They will be cunning and providing signs and wonders. And their entire objective is to deceive the church. 
So how will you know the difference between a counterfeit and the Christ? If you were to consider the Old Testament for a moment, true prophets were identified not by wonders, but by their faithfulness to the Word of God and their refusal to worship false gods. That is how we will tell the difference between the counterfeit and the Christ. See, this individual's entire objective is going to be to lure and to deceive you. Therefore, you and I must not be tolerant of sin. We must not negotiate sin. Those are the first steps toward deception. When it comes to the fact that this will take place, this isn't simply a reality. It's a grieving reality. It's a grieving reality that ought to stir our hearts to the urgency of the gospel. In Romans 9, one of the things that Paul says is that he is in constant anguish because he has friends who know the Scriptures but do not know God. And he goes on to say that if he can give up himself, if he could give up his salvation so that they might be saved, he prays that God would be glorified on that. But the idea here is that there is anguish in the Apostle Paul over the fact that people are perishing. So it's not just this, man, stinks to be them kind of a moment. There is deep grief and anguish. Therefore, it ought to stir our hearts to the urgency of the gospel. And in verse 10, he goes on to say that they will uh, use wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. In other words, those who do not know God are perishing. Why? Because they refuse to love the truth? Are they perishing because they denied Jesus? No, they're perishing because they are sinners in love with their sin, not because God hasn't made himself known. Just like you and I were at one point in that same position. Once more to Timothy, Paul says, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They will have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. You and I must not be tolerant of sin. We must not negotiate sin because those are the steps, the first steps toward deception. For you and I, regardless of the phrase, the temple of God, regardless of what he he means when he's talking about the one who is restrained, here's the principle. You and I, in order to remain steadfast, must look to Christ over a counterfeit and over calamity. And so we've looked at the confusion in the church. We've looked at calamity within the church. And now, if it appears I skipped to verse 8, not necessarily, because now we look at the arrival of the Almighty. Verse 8. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So Paul is saying, this individual is going to be revealed. He's going to arrive. And Paul at the same time says, yes, and Jesus will arrive as well. In the midst of these these things taking place, Paul is telling us God is unmoved. In the midst of persecution and affliction, God is not dull of hearing to the cries of his saints. In fact, God has proved and regularly shows his love for us through Jesus and the Holy Spirit, through an ordinary means of grace. And yet on this day, the Lord Jesus will descend from the heavens, and in doing so, we learn of the fate of Satan, the Antichrist, and unbelievers. 
First, Satan will be tossed and the Antichrist will be killed. Look at verse 8 one more time. The lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. He doesn't even need to draw a sword. You know what I'm saying? It's not like this. It's this, oh, man, they're equally matched. You know? Like really bad movies portray. When it's like, oh, it's God and Satan, and they're kind of equal, and they're kind of scheming against one another, and they're trying to figure it out. No, no, no. Like verse 8 tells us there's, there's no fight here. He will meet his end. You and I can flip through the pages of our Bibles. It's kind of like, like if you ever read comics, at least I did when I was a kid, and like if you were impatient and you even grew a little bit anxious because you think the good guys are going to lose or it just looks like evil is prevailing, and then you flip to the last few pages of the comic and you learn that the superhero wins and saves the day, if we flip to the back of our Bible, we learn that it's going to work out really, really well. It's going to work out really well for Jesus and his bride, the church. Second, unbelievers will be condemned. And if that sounds harsh, I want you to consider a couple of things, right? This is verses 11 and 12. Let's read those real quick. Paul says, Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, it's talking about those who are perishing, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The unbeliever, just as you and I were, suppresses the truth of God. It's not that God hasn't made himself known. Reread Romans 1. We looked at that last week. It's not that he hasn't made himself known. It is that we suppress the truth of God. Consequently, the unbeliever rejects the truth of God. They reject the truth of God because they take pleasure in unrighteousness. Their condemnation is God literally handing them over to the desires of their sin. It's not that God is in this corner of heaven uh, just uh, hardening, their ha- or hardening their hearts here. Paul is saying, as he does elsewhere, and in particular in Romans, what he is saying is that the condemnation of unbelievers, morally and spiritually, isn't more than God just turning them over to their dishonorable passions. It is literally him handing them over to what they wanted. It is not because he hadn't made himself known. Again, it ought to stir our hearts with an urgency for the gospel. It's not like you don't know the truth. Evil, sin, injustice, and affliction, what we learn in this section, section is that they are absolutely no match for the arrival of our King Jesus. And so what do we do with all of this? I'm not going to lie. This was a really tough passage to walk through, especially in 30 minutes. Uh, and then this weekend made it even uh, worse, right? So Friday night, we had friends come down from Fort Worth and San Antonio, and so we're having steaks, and we're enjoying the time, and it's like, oh, wow, this is the slice of heaven. And then uh, last night, right, we celebrate my son's graduation party and his birthday, and everybody's like singing and dancing and enjoying time with one another, and you're like, oh, man, by God's grace, this is another slice of heaven, right? And then it's like, oh, Sunday comes. What are you preaching on? I'm preaching on the Antichrist. That's weird. It's not weird, right? It's in God's word, but it was not easy. But nevertheless, as those things are unfolding, as those events over the weekend are unfolding, I'm asking, like, okay, cool, we can dissect this passage, so what? 
And so here's what I want you to walk away with. I want you to walk away. I want you to think and act deeply in these things. What do we do with this text today? Because again, if we approach this text like we approach uh, evil, like the rest of the world, where we ignore it or we idolize it, we're going to be in the wrong. And so here it is. Here's the first thing. What do we do with a text like this? We draw near to Jesus today. You see, true saving faith doesn't simply loves, love God's word, but loves God. So draw near to him today, whether it's in worship and prayer and confession and communion and community, draw near to Jesus today. In fact, the liturgy of a Sunday gathering is meant, the way we do things on Sunday, it's meant for us to be shaped by his grace so that we would draw near to Jesus, draw near to him today. Number two, test all teaching. Whoever is up here or up there, whoever is up here, whether it's me or Alan or Tony or guest preachers or whether you're watching YouTube sensations or you're constantly having some video of some teacher or some preacher up there, if the individual has a Bible in their hand and they are proclaiming the word of God, I'm telling you, test it. Test all of the teaching. Test it by scanning the pages of your Bible. Drink deeply from the water of the Word so that your faith would grow abundantly and that you would mature and grow stronger so that you would practice discernment, so that you would test whatever is preached, even when it bugs you and rubs you the wrong way. The Apostle John says it this way, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Over and over again, these other references in Scripture have referred to individuals that are going to come from within the church, individuals who are going to sway the church, individuals that are going to be falsely teaching, they're going to be presenting some kind of false doctrine. You and I can't act like we didn't know about it. Test all teaching. Number three, love the truth of God. Love the truth of God so that you would grow in fervor and in your faith. The God of the Bible, the God of this universe has made himself known through his word and through Jesus. Listen, God adores you. Push the darkness back. Do not be deceived. Love the truth of God. That truth is for you. Number four, proclaim the truth. You and I, you know the truth, so proclaim it. You have a message of eternal salvation. You have a message that says what is broken in this world can be and will be restored through faith in Jesus. You have that message that is yours. It is not simply a task that is to be carried. It is an urgent call to call people people to repentance through faith in Jesus. You have that message message and to deny it to people that you and I know who do not know the Lord do we really love them are you and I really going to bank on God is love but we're going to hold back the truth of eternal life it 
It's a message of great urgency, and particularly if you feel the anguish that Paul feels in Romans 9, it's a message of urgency to call people to repentance through faith in Jesus. So go and proclaim this message. Tell people that God entered into time, space, and history, that he lived a sinless life and died on a cross in our place for our sin and offers the gift of salvation through Jesus that you and I cannot earn. And our faith is not one of mere morality, but transformation. Because on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, conquering sin, Satan, and hell. And in addition to that, left our sin in the grave. You and I are not better. We're repentant. This is the truth for the sinner. Take it to them. Number five, walk in the truth. Live your faith vibrantly. True saving faith bears fruit. What's one of the ways in which we can be deceived when a believer doesn't or isn't drawn to other believers? True saving faith bears fruit. It turns its back on worldly pleasures and unrighteousness. And just like Paul tells Timothy, we flee temptation and we pursue righteousness. In affliction and in pain, we can turn to Christ over the culture and over calamity because God is sovereign, which means you don't have to be. Walk in the truth. Listen, Darth Vader is a really cool bad guy. He's uh, immortalized and idolized by many, and I'm sure there are many even in this church who wish he was real, but the truth is he is not real. However, Satan, the Antichrist, and the rebellion are. These individuals and these events aren't the, man uh, they're not the manifestation of our imagination. This is the exposure of evil and sin. This is the really real embodiment of sin. So Christian, examine yourself today, not later, not when you've sorted some things out, not when you've just experienced A, B, and C, and then you'll come back. No, examine yourself today. Wrestle with the scriptures, but walk in them too. Don't just wrestle with them and say, oh, I'm going to put that on the shelf and do my own thing. No, wrestle with the scriptures and walk the scriptures too. Do not consider yourself uh, to be walking faithfully when really you're walking arrogantly or ignorantly or foolishly because you think you figured it out or you think you have a plan. The plan is Christ, not creation. Examine yourself today. Draw near to Jesus Today, with open hands, vulnerable hearts, and even doubting minds. And may God give you comfort. And as you do that, keep going. Listen, those who are his cannot be snatched from his hand. And even if you think you could be, listen, you're not strong enough. Praise be to God that you're not strong enough. Not this, not the agas. Draw near to Jesus today in communion and in confession. And if you're not a Christian, thank you for being here. Like I just told you, oh, you probably had some really cool events happen this weekend, and now you're hearing about the Antichrist. So you got that going for you. But thank you for being here. You didn't have to be. But I got to tell you, you stand condemned. 
not because you deny Jesus, but because you're a sinner in love with your sin. You're not spiritually unhealthy. You're spiritually dead in your sin. But God has made a way for you to know him, to experience true freedom from the chains of your sin. And these chains can be broken. They need to be broken, but they cannot be broken by you. They can be broken by one who is stronger. They must be broken by one who is stronger, and his name is Jesus. I'm not promising you an easy life. Salvation is the reception of a new heart with new desires and the promise of eternal life in Jesus. Repent of your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus today. Church, today we must look to Christ over the culture and over calamity. Let's pray.